If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Mopac Audio. A note to listeners. The following podcast contains content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Hi, this is Chris, and I want to take a quick moment to let you know that we are down to our last few episodes of Season 1, and we want to thank you for listening. There is a lot out there, so we're grateful for you spending time with us. And in the coming weeks, we'll be doing a Q&A episode. We've received a number of questions already, and we welcome more. So if there's anything you'd like to ask about the case or otherwise, please email them to info at liskpodcast.com. That's info at liskpodcast.com. Also, we need your help with a couple things. First, please rate and review. This helps us, all podcasts, and it especially helps others find us. So we'd be thrilled if you'd take just a minute or two right now to not only give us a starred rating, but a brief written review as well. Also, we read them and appreciate them. Second, please tell a few friends about us. That is how so many listeners find podcasts. So all you have to do is press share and text it to someone, or a few someones. And here's why your help is so important. It helps us make a better season two sooner. Our success from season one helps us get out there and capture what we need to finish in season two. But the main reason your help is so important, it keeps a light on this case. It's just the fact that the more people who know, the more people talk, the more things happen. And for these families, we want things to move on this case. Thank you, again. And here's the episode. We smashed the window to the to the hotel room, and I jumped in there. And the guy had one of those gimp masks on, and was basically whooping her ass. You know, I wound up having to bash him with a baseball bat, but uh, he was fucking nuts. Like he was whatever. He took something. Because he was going ape shit, I was hitting this guy with a bat and it wasn't even phasing him. I mean, I clocked him in the forehead with it and he just shook it off. Previously on Lisk, Long Island serial killer. Things changed overnight. Once it was a serial killer, everything, everything changed overnight. Other reporters and I would talk to one another. We would say, does the Suffolk County Police Department not know what they're doing? Maureen had already been in the business for about three years at this point, off and on. And Maureen says she's been robbed. And from there, we don't know what happens. It's exactly two weeks later from the last time I saw her. I got a blocked call. It was August 2009, and there were flyers up, and there was this missing woman 
Megan Waterman. My daughter was Megan Amelia Waterman. There was a lot of chaos, and there were a lot of people coming through the house. It was staggering. She dated a couple guys, but then she fell in love. And her boyfriend, Vibe, ended up being her pimp. Toward the end, Megan would be taking trips with Vibe to Long Island to work. Amber and Megan were the two that was going to the same exact hotel. My name is Chris Moss. I'm a TV producer whose team spent much of the last three years working to understand what happened in the Long Island serial killer case and who's behind it. Going back, in May of 2010, Shannon Gilbert's disappearance from Oak Beach led to the discovery of Melissa Bartholomew in December of that year, just a mile or so down the road. We are here today to announce that all four women whose remains were discovered in Gilgo Beach last month have been positively identified. Yesterday, uh, members of the police department, the Homicide Canine Marine Bureau, Aviation Bureau, resumed the search for missing person Shannon Gilbert, who's been missing since May 1st of last year. We talked about two of those three victims in the last episode, Marine Brainerd Barnes and Megan Waterman, how they grew up, what led them to sex work, and those final days before they vanished. The fourth and final body found that December day alongside Ocean Parkway at a place called Gilgo Beach was Amber Lynn Costello. She, along with Melissa, Marine, and Megan, would become known as the Gilgo Four. Amber was also an escort and had only been missing for a few months. It was back in September 2010 that Amber booked an out call and then left her home in Babylon, which was just across the bay from where her body would be discovered that December. Beyond being the most recent victim, as far as we know, there are other aspects of Amber's case that would provide insights. So she left from the mailbox. She walked down this way. She kept looking. She made the right-hand turn here. And if you notice, if you look from from over here, well, there's a fence there now, but if you look, right, the way it's situated, you can actually see... My name is David Schaller, and... Uh, I was friends with Amber. Amber had lived with Dave for about a year. And when we met up with him, he showed us the house he once owned in Babylon, Long Island, where he watched Amber from the yard as she left for what would be her final out call. You can see, see from my house, you can actually see straight across from where my house is on my front doorstep over to here. And I saw, when I was going back up, I saw her walking around this way, so had I really paid attention, I could have seen what she got into, because it was right around here that she got into the car. We'll hear more from Dave Schaller later, but first it's important to learn who Amber was and how she got there, as it reveals why the details of her disappearance give us insight into who was behind her death. Amber Costello is a little different from some of the other victims because she really had a lifetime of escort work behind her. Just a reminder, this is journalist Robert Kolker, whose research into his book, Lost Girls, sheds light on Amber's past and what things were like growing up in North Carolina. Amber and her older sister, Kim, were the only two kids in a small family. The parents stayed married. It wasn't a broken home and it wasn't an abusive household. The one real nightmarish moment in Amber's life came not because of her family, but because of a neighbor. She was either raped or, or sexually assaulted, it isn't clear which, by a, a guy who lived nearby. And it really kind of shocked the entire family for a while. 
I think her dad went off the wagon and ended up having to go to jail for a little while. The mother ended up having to take care of the kids by herself. Amber's parents would do their best to weather this storm, but substance abuse was an issue. There was a lot of alcohol, though. Their dad had trouble holding down work, and their mother was functional but drank a lot as well, and it really affected her health, and she ended up dying young. I think by the time Amber was in her mid-teens, her mother had died, her father wasn't really able to support her. It was really up to her to make her own way in the world. Without parents to rely on, Amber bonded with her older sister Kim, who had just started college and now had the problem of how to afford it. And Kim met a friend at college who was running a very traditional escort service in North Carolina. By traditional, I mean that it was like a party girl service, like for bachelor parties and stuff, where they would go and strip at parties and such. And Amber started by working the phones, and then eventually started dancing herself. And then eventually, Kim and Amber started to work elsewhere. They would travel around and make money all over the place. This is where Amber and Kim went from the traditional party girl, strip at bachelor parties type of work, to more so sex for money. And as the nature of the work changed, so did Kim and Amber's need for anything that would keep them going. As Kim likes to say, and as a lot of people agree, you don't get into this work because of the drugs or the alcohol. The, you get into it because of the money. And then to keep working, that's when you develop the problems with drugs and alcohol. And that's what certainly happened with Kim, and that's what happened to a greater extent with Amber. After Kim and Amber spent some time traveling and working, they decided to go their own ways. Kim would head north and end up in Long Island, while Amber went south to Florida, where she kicked drugs, got involved in a church, and ended up getting married. The thing that I really took away from Amber is her life was so intertwined with her older sister, Kim, except for these blocks of time where she leaves Kim's orbit geographically as well as professionally, and she develops religion, and she, she lives as one of the faithful. And so when she saw that things weren't working for her, she did try to make a change. And she was, by all accounts, with the people I talked to in Florida, she loved, loved, loved being a part of that community as well. But eventually, she fell off the wagon. And with that, this new life and marriage she had built began to fall apart. So by the end of 2009, Amber was really hitting a hard time in Florida. Things had fallen apart with her husband. She had left that community. She was back on drugs. She was in rough shape. And she was on the phone with her sister, and her sister would often hand the phone to Dave and they would have conversations. And in Dave's view, he, he became the only one who really cared what would happen to Amber. Yeah, basically, I met Kim. Uh, how the hell did I meet Kim? Oh, man, let me think. Again, this is Dave Schaller, Amber and Kim's former housemate when they all lived together in Babylon, Long Island. No, I met her in, uh, where the hell did I, no, I met her in, in Babylon, I think. I met her in Babylon. I think, yeah, it was Babylon. I met her in Babylon. Dave Schaller has tragedy in his life as well. He had a lot of big difficulties that he went through as a, as a kid. And then as an adult, he's lost people who are close to him. He has a lot of pain to work through and, you know, his own drug problem. Um, but the thing about Dave is that he doesn't really think of himself that way. He is a real strong caretaker personality. He feels most like himself when he's helping other people. Dave would remember that he did meet Kim, Amber's sister, at a pizza place she worked at in Babylon. 
From there, Dave and Kim eventually dated, and she would spend a lot of time at his house. And often, that's when Amber would call. Kim would be, like, hanging out, and uh, her sister would call, and she lived down in Florida, and she called a lot, you know, so her sister, I guess, kind of would get, like, tired of talking to her, so she started putting me on the phone, and I was, you know, I got tired of talking to her, too, but um, she had my number. This was when Amber was really struggling in Florida. She was drinking a lot, back on drugs, back doing sex work, and Dave said she would call him at all hours. Three in the morning, she'd call Hammond, you know, and I'd be like, you know, who is this? But she would call and ramble on and on and on, you know, and most of the time I'd just put the phone next to my head and lay there and fall asleep. And literally I'd wake up, like, sometimes I'd wake up like an hour later because I, I didn't even mean to fall asleep. And she'd still be going. That's, that's how I started talking to her. It was during these late-night talks that Dave learned just how much trouble Amber was in down in Florida. Amber was, she was into, you know, uh, a wild lifestyle, going to bars, you know, um, kind of conning people, like picking guys up at bars, going home with them, robbing them after they passed out. And, you know, stupid enough, she was going to the same bars and guys were catching back up with her. And when they did, you know, they did a little bit of the hillbilly justice to her. Unfortunately, their version of hillbilly justice was, you know, brutal rapes and beatings. Dave went on to tell us that he felt it was only a matter of time before Amber ended up dead. I mean, these guys, some of them were not messing around. Like, I could tell, like, she owed some money. Plus, she was a mess, you know, she was drunk liquor and all other shit, you know, coke, pills. So I told Kim, I said, you know, this girl's going to get killed. One, she's going to get killed. It's whoever she owes money to catches her because, I mean, she owed some decent cash. But two, she was just going to kill herself, you know, because she was just such a mess. This is when Dave had the idea of getting Amber out of Florida, up to Long Island, and into rehab. The times were, you know, to go to rehab, the whole way I got her up here was, you know, was basically to save her ass, which turned out to, <laughs> you know, I, it, it's crazy that I brought her up here to save her from what was going on down there. Kim apparently was a little more ambivalent about whether or not to help her sister. Maybe Kim, and we can only speculate, maybe Kim thought that if Amber came up to Long Island that she would get both of them in trouble. First time I met Amber was, uh, when I picked her up at the airport, because I actually had never seen her. I only had spoken to her on the phone through Kim. So um, I went to the airport, and I was just standing there, and I guess she knew, you know, what I looked like, because Kim, I told her, you know, so I was just standing there, and she came walking up, and she looked like she went to us. I don't even know how to describe it. She just looks like she went through hell and back. I mean, she was clothes all looked like they came out of a from underneath the mattress, you know? I mean, she was skinny, beat up, dirty. She she was a mess. She was she was in bad shape, man. You know, real bad shape. Once she was at rehab, that's where she met her boyfriend, the guy was nicknamed Bear. And then the two of them got out of rehab and went to live with Dave at his little house on America Avenue in West Babylon, Long Island. Amber and Bear, I knew from the start, you know, that they were, you know, an item, you know, so, and, uh, it's, you know, and so that was another reason I kind of let him stay too. But eventually they're all on drugs and the money they're using to pay for the drugs is coming from Amber working on Craigslist. 
The return to escort work wasn't immediate, but it was almost inevitable. As everyone's drug usage went up and traditional work is harder to maintain, more and faster money is needed. But once the escort work did start, they tried to set some guidelines. Well, the way it was explained to me by Dave and Bear, there were rules, you know, there was a procedure, and it was all designed for safety. It's hard for me to imagine in real terms if you and your friends are hanging out in the house and doing a lot of drugs that it's going to be that structured and that disciplined, but this is what they say. At first, for safety's sake, they said no out calls. It would be only in calls, meaning the Johns would come to the house. Either Bear or Dave will be hiding in the back and ready to work security if something goes wrong, and there'll be no sex, it'll just be dancing. The way the house was set up, the, the bedroom was like set real deep into the back of the house, so you, you wouldn't know if anybody was there. She would do calls in the living room, and uh, there was panic, uh, you know, like certain things that she would say, or she would put on a certain song, or if it really got bad, she would just run to the bedroom. There was safety things put into place so that the client wouldn't know. Because if you just start screaming, chances are the guy's just going to grab you and start beating you. And although in-calls are generally safer, there were still times things didn't go as planned. There was one guy who she was told him, you know, like, this is a dance. And he kept trying to pull her onto his lap. And, you know, and she kind of panicked on that one. And we came flying out of the bedroom and he started running around the house, you know, nude jumping over furniture, trying to get out the door. And then finally, he actually jumped out my kitchen window and started running down the block naked. We, we had to go and wrangle him and uh, get him back to the house, convincing him that we weren't going to hurt him to get his clothes on because I couldn't have naked people running up and down the block. But what really astounded Dave was who some of the Johns actually were. Amber had uh, some interesting clients as far as people that surprised me, you know, lawyers, um, judges, police, councilmen, all these kind of people have like license plates that say, you know, Suffolk County Court, you know, and it'll tell it say judge on it or if you're a cop. Some of them would show up in county vehicles, you know, and I mean, it, like during lunch breaks. And some of them had no bones about saying, well, you know, ask for discounts because of their stature. I used to be uh, an assistant district attorney. Does that get me a uh, freebie? Just crazy stuff. It was almost like a circus. But, you know, a month or two goes by, the, the drug quotient gets higher, the desperation gets higher, and people, you know, start to check out of the situation and they get a little lax and things change. And after a while, Amber is clearly not just dancing for the customers. And after a while, Amber is doing out calls and the guys aren't with her and she's alone. And uh, out calls, out calls, it really wasn't able to be controlled because amazingly enough, you can walk into traps left and right. Amber walked into a trap once on an out call that she did. On this out call, Dave and Bear were just a flight down some stairs and in the parking lot. But when you're in trouble, that could feel like a world away. Well, she walked into the room, and right when she walked into the room, the guy slammed her against the wall and had all sorts of, like, basically, like, torture devices set up into the room. She managed to hit the, the send button, 
on the phone and it fell and we heard her screaming, you know. So we actually knew the room number that it was gonna be. So me and, and Bjorn actually ran up to the where the room was and we smashed the window to the hotel room and I jumped in there. And the guy had like, uh, I don't know what the hell you want to call it, like one of those gimp masks on, you know, and uh, was just basically whooping her ass. I wound up having to bash him with a baseball bat, but uh, I mean, he was fucking nuts. Like he took something because he was going ape shit. I was hitting this guy with a bat and it wasn't even phasing him, you know, like, I mean, I clocked him in the forehead with it and he just shook it off. But I mean, I hit this guy and, I'm, and I can swing a bat, you know? And I hit this guy in his ribs, his back. I hit him in the forehead and he just kept coming. Like he was rocking and rolling. I mean, to take a shot to the head with a friggin' Louisville slugger, you know, and keep coming. Luckily, Amber was able to get a call out and she had somebody close by. But as times got desperate, things got riskier. Eventually, Amber would be picked up for out calls, meaning she was alone and vulnerable. There was another one too. Uh, call, incoming call comes in. I answered it and she's like, he threw me out on the side of the parkway. And I'm like, what? The guy basically started dropping elbows and stuff on the side of a head and then opened up the door and threw her out. Like literally like pulled onto the grass, still going and out the door. You know what I mean? And like, and her shirt was all ripped. It was crazy, man. It, there, was, there was a lot of, you know, it's some fucked up shit, man. So in 2010, as summer ended, things on America Avenue were falling apart. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. The last days on America Avenue were really different from the way the summer had began. It was three friends having fun, doing some drugs, and working with one another as Amber did escort calls and Kim would come by from time to time. But by the end of the summer, the house on America Avenue was basically, Dave told me it was no longer a house anymore, it was a spot. It was just a place that the neighbors all knew about, that everybody inside was paranoid, they were strung out. And finally, Bear overdosed and announced he wasn't going to come back. He dumped Amber. Amber was devastated. Things were kind of fraying at the edges. Yeah, the last, that last day, Bear had, at this point had been gone. He went into uh, to treatment and then wound up in uh, 
they had to put him in ICU for a special kind of detox because, you know, he was in bad shape. So he had been gone out of the picture for about a month. And on the last day that anyone saw Amber, she was spending the day on the phone with a potential new customer. She was trying to upsell him during the day. He was agreeing to, you know, a price that is way higher than anyone else ever agreed to, something like $1,500. She was agreeing to do an out call, not an in call. Nobody was around to really second guess her. The day Amber that went missing was just, you know, like a regular day, you know, uh, just hanging out. I remember that day, she didn't want to do nothing. Like, she just wanted to chill, you know, and just have like a normal day. Well, this guy kept calling, you know, and, uh, you know, phone ringing off the hook. But this guy called back again, and uh, he started putting numbers up, you know, like big money, $1,500, he said, you know, like, uh, there's a possibility of you staying overnight. She was at that time full-blown, junk, you know, heroin, doing a lot of dope, so she figured, you know, if she can make 1500 bucks, she wouldn't have to do nothing for, you know, a week, maybe. She wouldn't have to go and meet nobody, no dates, you know, she'd be straight. But for Dave, there was something that wasn't quite right about the man who had called four or five times that day. He called back a couple of times. I remember she took a shower and she was getting ready. And he, he called back and he just kept setting that hook deeper and deeper. And the amount of times she mentioned the money was just like, it was game, set, match. There were a few things, including the amount of money being discussed, that threw Dave off. I came out and she was getting gussied up, you know, getting ready to go. You know, I'm like, you really gonna go do this at $1,500? I told her, I'm like, something doesn't seem right because nobody just offers up that kind of dough, you know? So she got off the phone with him and she's like, well, he'll be here in 20 minutes, half hour. Apparently she was comfortable enough with this guy to not meet him right outside the house, but to meet him down the road. The guy calls, tells her he's down the block. And I'm like, down the block. But I figured, you know, well, she knows I don't want nobody in front of the house, so maybe that's why it's down the block, you know? So her pocketbook, her phone was there. And I'm like, you're forgetting your shit. And she's like, oh, no, I don't need it. She's like, he said I can use his phone or something. And I'm like, you're not going to take your phone? Like, you know, what your pocketbook? You don't need ID, nothing, you know? No, 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 we're just going to go to his place. Here, we're back with Dave in his car on America Avenue in Babylon. It's a quiet neighborhood lined with small cottages. Right where the mailbox was, was the last spot I saw her. I gave her a hug and a kiss goodbye. We're in front of the house Dave once owned while he recalls that last night, September 2nd, 2010, when he walked Amber out to meet her John. So she left from the mailbox. She walked, she walked down, she walked down this way. She kept, kept looking. She made the right, she made the, the right hand turn here. A few houses down from Dave's, there's a cross street where Amber turned. And waiting there, just barely out of sight from Dave's yard, the killer's car sat idling. So, I mean, that's how close it was for me to uh, have seen what she got into, you know, at least it's an identifier. Or I could have just said, you know what, screw you, I'm walking with you to the car, you know what I mean? It, it's, it, it, it plagues me. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's like a... It's like a never-ending, it's like on a loop in my mind. That little bit fucking, uh, I don't know, man. Once Dave didn't hear from Amber that night, as they had planned, he wasn't sure what to do. I went to bed probably that night at like 4, because she was supposed to call. And uh, I woke up probably 8 o'clock in the morning, looked around, she wasn't there. 
you know, I couldn't call her. So I started calling back all the numbers that were on the phone. Nothing, man, you know, and that was it. That was, uh, started to worry after she didn't come back by a little bit later that afternoon. And I called Kim and told her, you know, like, your sister never came home. She figured that maybe she went back down to North Carolina because that's all the times she'll do is just bounce and go back to North Carolina. But no, after whatever it was, like three days, you know, I was like, you need to file a police report. Kim told Dave she'd file a missing persons report. And from there, all he could do was wait for any news. Kim said she'd handle it. Never did. And uh, next time I heard anything about it was the detective showing up at my door and uh, asking me if I knew her. And I'm like, yeah, I know her. And then I just put two and two together, and I was just like, man, I'm like, she's dead, isn't she? And uh, they're like, well, we think we found her remains. This, of course, was in December 2010 when the four bodies were discovered on Ocean Parkway. By that time, Kim was deep into her addiction and nowhere to be found. So that left Dave to help the detectives determine if it was actually Amber. They had me uh, do an identification because they couldn't get in touch with Kim. The only identification I could do, because I couldn't really look at her, was uh, there was a little tattoo on her arm. So they lifted it up, and I saw the tattoo, and I was like, yeah, it's her. So by getting in touch with Kim and having a comparative DNA test done with family, and uh, that's how they figured out that it was 100% her. The death certificate said homicidal asphyxiation. So he probably caught her from behind, you know, and choked her to death. At that point, I I left the house in Babylon, and uh, I went to rehab. Before we delve into the details of Amber's disappearance and why it's so important to providing clues to who's behind the killings, let's revisit our timeline. In 2010, between December 11th and 13th, police discovered the bodies of Melissa, Amber, Megan, and Maureen. You've now heard their stories and how those families, who had waited months if not years, finally had answers. Once the police found those four bodies on Oak Beach, they suddenly had all eyes on them. And it wasn't long after the first frost came and they announced that they were not going to be able to search the Bramble for Shannon any longer. For our team, Suffolk County Police suspending their search for Shannon, and now potentially others, has always been a baffling decision. Why make Shannon's family and a number of other families who have missing connected to Long Island wait months for possible answers? Frost, snow, or cold would not hamper cadaver dogs, and we'd hope the same for their human counterparts. A trained cadaver dog can detect human remains that are up to 30 years old and as deep as 15 feet underground. And what I was told later was that they were communicating with the FBI about the case and getting some tips and pointers from them. And the understanding was while they worked other aspects of the case, like trying to chase phone records or contacts, uh, they would wait until the first thaw to go out and search the Bramble again, assuming Shannon was still missing. We hope Suffolk County Police had a logical reason for what they did and they just haven't shared it, or we have somehow overlooked it. But until we learn otherwise, the best answer we've come up with is that police suspended the search to avoid having more bodies and questions to contend with. Amber's disappearance is important to understanding who might be behind all this. Amber was the last one we know of to disappear. And those four bodies along Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach were found 13 weeks after she disappeared. 
And so in theory, her body would be the one in the best condition, thinking forensically, perhaps the one with the most evidence that could help investigators. There isn't a lot of on-the-record information from the police about the condition of the bodies. There's nothing we can really know for sure about how much DNA was left behind. Over the years, Suffolk County police have released very little about what clues or evidence might have been left behind. However, it is worth noting that on January 16, 2020, SCPD held a press conference. We made a decision as a team that now is the, is the time to release this information. We do believe that this item was handled by the suspect and did not belong to any of the victims. During it, one thing they announced was the creation of GilgoNews.com. The website is to help disseminate information related to the case. Also, Suffolk County Police revealed some photos. A black leather belt embossed with a pair of half-inch tall letters that were, depending on how you looked at them, either an HM or a WH. During it, the question was asked why, a decade later, they're suddenly releasing this piece of evidence. We have decided now to leverage uh, social media, obviously with the website, and put information out there in the hopes that the public will come forward with a piece of information about the origin of that article. To see the Suffolk County Police Department's press conference, or the photos of the evidence they released, go to listpodcast.com. And hopefully SCPD's release is helpful. But for now, what's more revealing about the killer comes from looking back at the details from that night, Amber's calls and interaction with him. Again, here's Dave Schaller. I don't know what they were talking about, but I know that she was playing her, her game, flirting, you know, I guess saying little sexy things, you know, trying to get the guy to, you know, entice him more. Obviously, he already was fixed and knew what he was going to do. What interests me about that last call is you you see the, the killer at work in the hours he spends on the phone with her on and off all day long. Uh, she may be working on him, trying to get a new price, but he's working on her, too. After the first few calls from the John that day, Dave questioned Amber, trying to understand what was going on and what her thinking was. It doesn't make sense. I said, he didn't ask you any prices, you know, or how much you would want, nothing. He just threw that out there. I said, that's just, you know, it seems like he's fishing. The $1,500 offered to Amber that night was a lot of money, but she had been in the business far too long to fall for the promise of a big payday. There was more to it. What we're dealing with here, as we see from the other victims, is a killer who is organized enough to do some social engineering. That is to say, to be manipulative and to talk people into doing things they might not normally do. I mean, the only thing that made that day different was that she went against all the rules that she and her sister had followed for years and years and years and years, you know? Never leave without a means to get in touch with somebody. Have your ID with you, you know, I mean, just any, anything. She lived to have that phone in her hand, like, you know what I mean? So, and her pocketbook, no clothes or nothing. So somehow she just basically violated all her own little safety rules. Everything that was bred into her over the course of doing this for all these years just went right out the window. We asked Dave what he remembered about Amber that night she left. What was her state of mind? Did she seem nervous, hesitant, or even scared? Not at all. Not at all. Not the way she left. She left with a pair of booty shorts and a pink t-shirt, a pair of pink sneakers. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. Everything else was just, 
you know? And it was like, not even nervous, like no nerves. I think you're definitely seeing a, a signature develop here in terms of the, the man who did this. Well, let's take a look at the last call of two women who are pretty close together in terms of the date of their disappearance. There's Megan Waterman in May of 2010 and then Amber Costello in September of 2010. They both are talked into leaving where they were working, leaving their headquarters and doing an out call as opposed to an in call. That's a, a very unsafe thing to do when you're working alone. If you remember from the previous episode, it's believed Megan Waterman had been talked into leaving her Long Island hotel to meet up with the killer. And they both are, not only that, they don't necessarily meet the person right at the entrance of where they are, they both are meeting a stretch down the way, a, a short walk down the road. This shows that, or indicates, that the killer is convincing them to take some steps that are good for him, that are good for his privacy, somebody who wants to protect his privacy. And it doesn't make sense. I mean, to the point where the, when the guy who picked her up parked around the corner, you know? I mean, just all, all safety nets were basically just cut down and thrown out. Dave always says that there's no way Amber would have trusted anybody to go out all night like that unless it was someone she knew. Yeah, I believe she threw the guidelines away because she knew the person and the person was somebody that you would normally, you know, like trust, like, you know, like if it was a regular, you build trust, you know, but you still have a certain amount of guard. But if it's somebody of like, say, prominence, if you were a regular and Amber were to find out, oh, well, this guy's a cop, she would feel a lot more comfortable to let all her guards down because who would have think that a cop picking up an escort would do something barbaric? To sum up Dave's point or theory, the person who picked up Amber that night was not simply a regular who on a whim decided to offer her four or five times her normal rate. Dave feels it was someone Amber knew, she had seen him before and she felt he could be trusted but also it was someone with a social standing or prominence. This adds to the trust factor and the reason why she complied to his demand for discretion. This explains his request she leave her phone behind to avoid any recordings or tracking and why he asked to meet down the block. And obviously Dave can't say it was definitively a cop, nor can we, yet. But Dave is pretty sure of one thing. I'd pretty much, you know, be willing to bet the sink on it that you know, with the precautions taken, that it was somebody I saw. So in light of that, we decided to show Dave some photos to ask if he recognized any of them as Johns who'd come by the house to see Amber. These are men who, for one reason or another, have connections to the case. We'll be able to tell you more about some of them in later episodes, but for legal reasons, we'll hold back on their identities for now. I, uh, I'm going to show you some pictures of some people. I'm mm. just curious if any of them look familiar. Yeah. See if you recognize anybody. Not, uh, not off the top of my head. I'd have to kind of, yeah. That guy, kind of, I'm uh, kind of. It looks familiar, but I'm not. I can't say if he was or not. But he looks, he looks familiar. That's the Gilbert guy. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. See. That's that. the guy who Dave recognizes Joe Brewer, Shannon Gilbert's John, from news coverage, but not as one of Amber's regulars. 
However, the next photo grabs Dave's attention. What's that guy do for a living? Do you know? Yeah. What does he do? He's going Yeah. Yeah, dude, this guy looks familiar, man. He really does. I'm pretty sure that he actually came to and, and met her. So he hold it up for us. So that guy came by in that truck to pick her up? Pretty, pretty, pretty sure, dude, that he came to the house, man. I'm almost positive because this guy looked really familiar. And then the thing kicked it right in. Coming up on Lisk, Long Island serial killer. And lo and behold, on December 5th, 2011, they find Shannon Gilbert's belongings in the marsh, technically in the backyard of Peter Hackett's house. For the most part, the only thing left of Shannon Gilbert was skeletal remains. This case has so many twists and turns and so many theories have popped up. Is it a police officer? Is it a park worker? What are you telling me? The chief of police having sex with prostitutes and they make him the chief and they don't fire him? What do you mean? The campaign checks are going to a house with a Gilgo Beach, you know, where there's allegations of strangling going on? It's too far-fetched. But here in Suffolk County, it's the reality. This has been Episode 5 of Season 1 of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer. If you enjoyed the show, we ask that you please tell your true crime friends to listen, review, and subscribe. This episode was written, produced, and recorded by myself, Chris Moss, Jonathan Beal, and Shannon McGarvey. Editing and musical composition by Blake Maples. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzarden, Jonathan Beal, and me, Chris Moss. Brought to you by Mopac Audio. For more information, including exclusive photos and videos, go to liskpodcast.com. L-I-S-K-podcast.com. If you suspect human trafficking, contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline by texting HELP to 233-733.